1: Hi, this is Phil. This week, JF and I welcome Eric Davis back to Weird Studies. This is the one time I could introduce an episode with the time-saving platitude. Here is someone who needs no introduction. If you're listening to this show, you almost certainly have listened to Eric's OG podcast, Expanding Mind, possibly for years. Eric has pursued a decades-long career as a free-range intellectual of all matters mystical, psychedelic, and occult. He wrote a book on Led Zeppelin IV for the Continuum 33 and a Third series, a volume of essays titled Nomad Codes, a history of Californian spiritual culture titled The Visionary State, and the classic study Technosis, which explored the esoteric currents of information technology. And before we go any further, press pause on your podcast app, stop listening to me, and go pre-order his new book, High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s, which Amazon tells me will be released on June 11th. I'll wait. Okay, now that you're back, let me tell you what you can expect once you've gotten this hefty tome unwedged from your mail slot. High Weirdness is a study of the esoteric currents in 1970s California counterculture, namely those belonging to Terrence and Dennis McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, and Philip K. Dick. More broadly, though, high weirdness is a magisterial work of scholarship that confronts the great challenge of esoteric studies, how to understand extraordinary spiritual experiences from a scholarly and rational standpoint, but without dismissing them as delusion or pathology. One image that runs through high weirdness is the figure of the high wire acrobat. Dick, Wilson, and the McKenna brothers were artists walking a high wire of visionary experience, magical gnosis, and high-dose psychedelic experimentation. The synchronicities and theophanies they experienced were so outlandish that it's hard not to feel that either they are crazy or we are. And the thing is, that's what these artists thought too. Is my mind playing tricks on me? Or is there something real and valuable, perhaps priceless, that almost everyone has missed but that for some reason is being revealed to me? Or are both perspectives somehow simultaneously available to me? It's tricky to balance these two perspectives, cool rationality and an openness to mind-blowing experience. And this is the balance of Eric's high-wire acrobat. It is a balance that Eric's subjects alternately found and lost and regained, and it is a balance that Eric himself somehow amazingly manages to sustain throughout his book. Before we start the show, I'll make a quick pitch for our Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash weirdstudies and check out all the subscriber-only audio conversations and written essays we've published there. If you like the show, you'll like what we're making for our patrons— and your support helps us keep this show ad-free and independent. Okay, thanks for listening.
0: I just finished the book this morning, actually. I mean, it's a big book, you know. It's a big book. Um, But I just finished it today, so I'm still in the afterglow.
1: I'm still having my post-coital cigarette (laughs) right now. (laughs) (laughs) This, This book has the feeling of like a magnum opus. Like it has that feeling of like, I, I I don't know if this is true, but it feels like a book that in, well, for one thing, my feeling is it's a book that needed to be written. I, I have long wished that somebody would write a proper study of California counterculture spirituality in the 70s and focusing on a couple of the major figures. And so, boom, here it is. Um but, uh, but there's, it's so rich, there's so much in it, and there's so, ma- so many ways of looking at the phenomena that you're covering. It just has that feeling of having been uh, slowly cogitated upon for a long time.
2: Yeah, that, that's fair. You know, I was really marked by my, you know, early encounter with both Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick as an undergraduate. I had a funny situation where, you know, I grew up at a public high school in Southern California. It was the same high school that uh, Tony Hawk, the skateboard pro, went to at the same time I was there. And it was kind of like, uh, you know, the original Ridgemont High was is, was actually in San Diego. It's the, the place where uh, uh, Cameron Crowe went and it was called uh, Claremont High. And it really wasn't that different than my, my high school. So it was very, ri- very kind of Ridgemont High style place. And then I went to the East Coast to Yale at the kind of sort of slightly bloom off the Rose era of deconstruction. But, you know, that kind of theory and philosophy was, you know, permeated the study of English, which is what I did. So I was in this weird place of like, I didn't really know where to put my California identity. And there were heads at Yale, but with a few exceptions of of individuals who I was friends with, the the kind of scenes around psychedelics and that weird shit, which was very much my high school life, um, they were all from like prep schools. And I could not relate. There was some kind of weird, incestuous, sneaky like insular vibe around the deadheads and at Yale that I just I mean they were cool but I just I couldn't I couldn't relate because for me it was always about the open you know it was always like keggers and suburban streets and it wasn't like this sort of insular thing so I ended up hanging around with really different people who were just f- funny and you know from New Yorkers most of them they weren't psychedelic people. But And then theoretically, I was like, oh, I'll you know, get into all this new stuff and, you know, da, da, da. but I had to like find a way to also still be ahead. And so Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick and, uh, were, were ways of kind of like holding on to something about California that was intellectual as well as personal. And so I wrote my senior thesis on, on Dick. And there's actually some of that material is in this book. Hmm. Not much, but there's a few chunks of stuff that I thought someone would get to eventually and nobody ever did. And all as far as I saw in the Dick literature, although I am not no longer up to snuff because there's there's so much of it. So, yeah, so that, you know, you got some of that stuff going on there. And and for me, Ra was always a very like a lot of people. I think I was most influenced by him when I was sort of coming into my adulthood as an until you know, it was between adolescent and adulthood and late teens kind of phase it was a really really good time to read Robert Anton Wilson and he kind of got in there and so to return to him was also very much this kind of like longer longer life arc but then just as a project it's been you know I went to school on and, uh, 9 years ago went to you know your, your PhD program and started working on this maybe three years later so it's been you know it's been like six years of more or less working on it you know different versions wrote the dissertation rewrote it cut stuff rewrote stuff blah 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 so it's also been cooking for a long time and and i did want to write another you know whatever you want to call magnum opus because it's a weird thing to write a book like technosis in your late 20s and you put something out there and it, be, it becomes this kind of cult book for a lot of people, a lot of different communities, and has a lot of influence and it's still in print and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm really proud of it, but I'm also like, it's, you know, I'm kind of done with it. But it's a weird psycho- psychological state to be like, well, you know, you probably have done the most influential and important work of your life already. Like, you're not going to do that again. At least being a, kind of ahead of the cr- curve, like it's sort of an inspired book, like I was putting things together that were just hadn't been crystallized together in the, that kind of way, even though all the, in, you know, it's not like I was coming up with incredibly original ideas. I was just, I was weaving things together and layering things and drawing juxtapositions and correspondences in a, in a fresh way. Enunciating um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I was like, but then as this thing started to kind of densify, and I realized that there was so much going on, and that I wanted to not only tell the story, but also reflect on the story and reflect on the story in some interesting theoretical ways that I think are kind of novel, at least for the more scholarly theory head people. Um, I was like, oh, wait, this is actually, it might not cover as much ground, it might not reach as many communities, and it, it might not have that sort of big picture snapshot kind of thing. At the on the other hand, it's really going to contribute and fill this big void uh, around texts, particularly ones that are somewhat scholarly. And so, at a certain point, I just put everything in. You know, then I just went nuts for it and wanted it to be excellent. And rewrote many sections over and over and over and over again. And read tons of secondary literature and lots of notes. And you know, I and I had never really written like a properly footnoted book either. And even though, you know, they tell you like, oh, nobody likes us anymore. And all the, you know, scholars are trying to write pop books and only have minimal footnotes and stuff. I wanted to write one book in my life that had, you know, 800 footnotes that many of which were like little essays or paragraphs or whatever. I wanted one of those, you know, I wanted one something with a big fat bibliography in the back. I wanted like a proper academic book, just as sort of a thing to do not because oh, i yeah. thought it was better than some other kind of thing. So all those all those forces went into bringing a lot of attention and energy into this
0: this one artifact. So one one of the differences i've i detected, i don't know if it's actually there, but that i i sensed between technosis and this latest work is a, a i don't i wouldn't call it a turn but a kind of like a harder commitment to a kind of realism that I I, don't, I didn't find as much in technosis. Like, this is one thing I really like about your book is its commitment to what you call weird naturalism or kind of realist positioning. D- do you find that there's been a a change on that front or maybe like a, an evolution towards that? Or is that was that already there in technosis?
2: Uh, yes and no. I mean, I don't think I thought things through. With technosis, and also I was more of a postmodern then, so I was less uh, invested in in ideas of the real. Uh, I was less resistant to kind of flashy conceptual systems that, if they weren't idealist, were certainly not naturalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though I probably, my sensibility was still fairly skeptical, grounded, and definitely always grounded in, in history, to the degree one can be grounded in history. Uh, This thing was very different. And partly that shows going to university and choosing to go to university was partly like choosing to go through a a kind of process. And it was actually more of an initiation than I had assumed. I went in there with a kind of arrogant attitude that like, look, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write about Philip K. Dick and I'm going to learn some stuff and it'll be fun and I'll drink a lot of beer and you know, whatever. But uh, working with Jeff Kripal, um, and Kripal talks about this in uh, Serpent's Gift, uh, he talks about studying religion in this three stages, where there's sort of the undergraduate approach to studying religion, which is very positive and sort of pluralistic, like, hey, wow, look at all these different religions, check out Zoroastrianism. It's cool. They got fire. It's great. And, you know, the Jews, they roll out the, like, the Torah. Look at that thing. It's awesome. You know, and that's, that's kind of the undergraduate approach. And then as a graduate student, you get disenchanted of all that, you know, in the study of religion, in the secular study of religion, everything is on the table. So psychology, history, politics, you know, increasingly cognitive science, literary history anthropology like all of these different tools very interdisciplinary field all of these different tools can be brought to bear on religion as an object of social science and so you tend to get a very disenchanted view and that's kind of the bite of the serpent it's like ah you can't go back ah you can't just revel in the the mystery you have to think about it you have to go what is this why am i using this word mystery what does that mystify or whatever But there's then this third stage that you don't have to get to, but Kripal, in his own way, is occupying and and inviting other people in, in in a lot of ways, to find their own version of it. And I definitely don't, I I see myself as doing something slightly different because I'm more naturalistic. But there's sort of like a, you know, a sort of dialectic uh, synthesis, if not synthesis, then some sort of overcoming where you allow something like the mystery back in. and. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to write about things that were enigmatic, synchronicities, mystical experiences, the sort of call of the other, the call of the radical ontology that seems to unfold in our most extraordinary experiences, including psychedelic experiences. But then I also saw that there was a fun game to play. And the fun game was to say, let's see how far I can justify, affirm, and articulate this phenomena from a naturalistic perspective. Let's stay within an expanded naturalism, not so much because it's where I ultimately have my, you know, ah, I put my stake down. You know, like personally, I am I think I'm probably still in a flow. And as I move forward and maybe away from a lot of scholarly debates, I'll find myself in, in, in different zones. But by that point, I'd been studying or paying attention to new age stuff and weird religion and paganism and all this stuff for a long time. And I was frankly sick of it. I was sick of the, the willingly deluded, fuzzy, uh, unhistorically informed repetition of the same tropes over and over again. I was just, mm. I just no longer interested me. It was okay. Like I didn't mind if people, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, go ahead and do it, but it didn't really engage me anymore. Whereas it was, it seemed much more interesting to kind of basically take an, a naturalistic historical perspective, and then from within that, see how far I could theoretically push certain ideas in order to stage encounters that were more or less doing the same thing if you were thinking of them in a more mystical or expanded multidimensional kind of way. Um, So in that sense, really according with a a kind of Jamesian approach, because I think that's a lot of what, what William James was about, like what was really motivating him was something like that. Like, let's see how far we can push this stuff and be true to those kinds of commitments to knowledge and to critique, which I do take very seriously, um, especially these days, but then also to see how far I could make a case. It was a little bit of a Trojan horse and I have no idea whether it's gonna be effective at all. Like I totally, it's not my decision. I just did my best. But the Trojan horse was like, look, if you follow the arguments I'm making seriously and you kind of then do it in your own way with your own material, you are going to have to take on certain encounters, certain possibilities that are going to challenge your sort of rote naturalism and possibly in a really significant way. And then once you've done that, you're kind of stuck. You can't go back. So it's trying to be a little bit of that serpent sting but in a different way than, than Krepel talked about.
0: It. Right, right. And can, can you define nat- weird naturalism? The way you talk about Harmon and Tim Morton at the beginning and their ideas of weird realism, weird essentialism, but there's a slight difference. There's a slight shift in what you're doing here. So why, yeah. the, why the term naturalism? Why weird naturalism?
2: You know, that's a. I, you know, I kind of wrestled with lots of different ways of, of thinking about it. I think what I liked about naturalism is that if you if you line up a variety of similar terms, materialism, physicalism, that naturalism had the most room for a kind of experiential quality that's rooted in actually just being in relationship to material objects. It's not just a claim about there are only material objects, there are only physical objects. It's sort of like having a historically, like a natural historical perspective, as well as a materialist perspective. And I take that really seriously. Like, I really look at human history as being something that's embedded inside this larger arc of natural history. So that, for example, when electricity is folded into human communication... That that's sort of an event, not only in human history that allows certain things to happen and creates new economies and new ways of controlling things and new fantasies, new mythologies, but that that actually is an event within natural history too. Because suddenly mm. this outside, these forces are suddenly kind of articulated in a way that then gives them, an, a, they, they've evolved, they've moved into something new. Right. And so, Naturalism to me is the closest to an animistic perspective, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to do all the theoretical work, though. I find it very interesting, and in some ways, I'm very moved by it for a kind of animist approach. But for me, naturalism was something that was kind of bridging some of these weird essentialisms or. Uh, speculative realisms and something that's a, a more robustly weird like animism, where like things are actually agents, they have their own spirits and perspectives. We have to deal with them, we have to, you know, kind of make our way through it. And the, the idea of the weird is simply that, and what I loved about the concept, the more and more I thought about because I didn't really have all these thoughts about the weird when I latched onto the term, I just sort of felt like it was the right way of approaching this stuff. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, that was a good intuition. Actually, this is really helpful, is the more I track both the way that other people had used the term weird and, you know, etymologically, and then seeing how it functioned even in people's ordinary speech. You know, people use the term a lot, but usually not in a very uh, conceptual way. Uh, It's often a placeholder for things that they don't know where else else to put. Um, And... So I I noticed that, like, in a way that what's marvelous about the the idea of weird, one way of saying how does weird function in in our language today is that it's a place to put things that if you try to explain them will probably take you into explanations that are no longer naturalistic. And Mm. if you don't want to do that, the best thing to do is just to go, yeah, weird. You know, so... I have a synchronicity. It's like super weird. <laughs> and I'm like explaining like, how, what happened? Like, I don't know. It almost feels like my life is being written by, you know, cosmic agents. And like, no, 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 I'm not going to go down that. I'm going to say, but I'm not going to go, well, wow, it was just a coincidence. You know, statistically right. speaking, it's uh, likely that there'll be some, you know, you're like, shut up. You know, I don't want to hear that yeah. either. So that's a boring, that's a boring physicalism. What seems more apparent is that there's something in reality, there's a there's a dimension of it, an aspect of it, a feature of it, a zone of it that is weird, and that's where like uh, Tim Morton really helped because he's really good, if slippery, but in a way you kind of have to be slippery to do this of of sort of architecting the loops that we're in as we try to think about things that are also sh- shaping us, and that loop for him is part of where the weird is, so the idea that like or more general speculative realist idea that yes, we are in a world of objects. There are many objects we're relating to objects. They're real objects. They're not just projections. They're not just little fictional organizations of more fundamental quirks or whatever uh, that these things are in, in some sense real, but that there is an aspect of them that's fundamentally veiled even from themselves. And mm-hmm. that v- veiledness, even from ourselves is to me, that's, that's where you can be like, yeah, that's where the weird happens. And yeah. it's really weird, but it's not, we're not leaving the plane. We're not right mm. invoking another dimension, another domain of explanations, ideal forms, any of that stuff. We're just going like, look, if you're really paying attention, it gets weird. And that's all I need to say to make that you know that's sort of like the come on over here and look at it this way kind of aspect yeah. of the of the argument
1: yeah Graham Harman's invocation of Heidegger which you in turn invoke in the part early on where you're talking about weird realism or weird naturalism um, that invocation of Heidegger is sort of on the money here because there's a sort of sense of like oh yeah the world is full of things and those things are not hypostases or projections or figments of some transcendent and, uh, as yet unavailable, higher, whatever reality. Um, but at the same time, they have two faces. They face us, but they also face away from us and they are always receding. Uh, there's a book by, uh, Hee Jin Kim called A Hee Dogan Mystical Realist, uh, which I haven't read. Um, But nevertheless, the idea of calling Dogen a mystical realist is interesting to me because Mm. that's kind of an important thing in Dogen Zen is this radically imminent position on reality. Nothing is hidden. That's a – it rings a bell, but I'm from. I think it's from instructions to the cook, but I'm not 100% sure. But that's a, like a something that Dogen quotes from one of the Chinese masters that he encountered. Yeah. Nothing is hidden. And so like, yeah, you know, reality kind of is what it is. It's, it's right there. It's right. right there, but it's always receding from us. So uh, somehow, you know, we set about to give an account of that reality and we somehow find that, we've changed the subject or the subject has changed itself, or somehow we've ended up somewhere other than where we began. And we're not a hundred percent sure how we got there. Um, you know, Heraclitus's line uh, nature likes to hide or, or however you want to translate that nature loves to hide itself from whatever also seems to be a statement of this. It's just sort of like this paradoxical sense that reality is given yet receding.
2: Yeah. And, and for me that that's, I had talked about putting my stake down before, in a sense, that is what I've done. I've long been attracted to more speculative possibilities and mystical, you know, ideas and esoteric concepts and various forms of Platonism and all of that. And, you know, when I'm, you know, as I get getting older and being like, well, you know, like, let's, let's really try to like, focus on what seems most productive at this point and spend a little less time being an anthropologist of other people's ideas which is a lot of what I what I've done uh, you know and partly cuz through my zen practice it's this it's this balance of understanding or, or making room for the most extraordinary parts of my own experience incredible dreams, encounters, secular experiences, mystical experiences on the Natch, all these things, and taking those things very seriously, but not necessarily literally, and at the same time, really affirming this kind of radical, nowhere-to-go imminence, which yeah. has just always been attractive to me, the the materiality of it, the goofiness of it, the kind of cosmic jokeness of it, and also just the frankly, the banality of it, I mean, in a good sense, like it's, it's like, no, 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 you're not going to live in a pure land. No, 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 it's right here. Now, you know, there's something about that that just always temperamentally, philosophically uh, resonated with me. So in a way, the weird is a way to, to bridge those two, that there's something in just the banal facticity of things that is weird. And that at the farthest edges, there's this really trippy stuff that happens, that can be transformative, it can be magical, it can be divine even, but it's still part of the plane.
0: Of this world, yeah.
2: Yeah, by somehow affirming that, it just
1: feels both audacious and also kind of simple in a way that that I like. Yeah, there's a great line in an essay by the minimalist composer Steve Reich, who in 1968 was definitely hanging out in weird territory he got into writing minimalist music by creating music of process, you know, processes that he would observe in nature, like, you know, the tide coming in and burying your feet in the sand or whatever. Uh, So he sought to, in his early works to create music of process, things like pendulum music, which just consists of a bunch of microphones on different lengths of cord being set in motion and giving off a phased pattern of feedback squeals with the speaker. And, in writing about this, he has this great line. He's, he's talking about the tendency in a lot of new composition to write a lot of hidden technical forms, like to create structures, like serial composition where you're hiding things. And you know, he says, what I'm interested in is a compositional process and a sounding music that are one in the same thing. And he says, the use of hidden structural devices in music never appealed to me. Even when all the cards are on the table and everyone hears... What is gradually happening in a musical process, there are still enough mysteries to satisfy all. And I love that. Even when all the cards are on the table and everyone hears what's happening, there's still enough mysteries for all. And I, that is the uh, – um, what you just were saying it's, kind of reminded me it, of that line. It's funny. It's reminding me of an
2: experience I had when I was in a, in a cult order for a while. And, I, you know, I went in it like a lot of things that I've done in my life, which I'm both – proud of and, and not altogether satisfied with with a, a kind of participant observer attitude and i I've, I've done a lot of th- really interesting things in in my life but often coming from that attitude which has a kind of mixed bag associated with it but this thing you know it, it, it ended up being you know pretty interesting pretty i like I like the people f- it was a good thing to do for a while it didn't last uh, super long you know a couple of years but you know I, I could just tell that I wasn't wasn't ever really going to be a proper magician. Like I I like occultists. I'm glad to know them. I'll talk to them. I enjoy being able to speak their language and to appreciate what it's like to be a really deep occult practitioner. And I've been blessed to know people who are really deep. And there's sort of of an energy or a vibe uh, that is really appealing to me. Um, But I kind of realized that that really wasn't my path and and in one particular experience, I mean, I, you know, I, I had a lot of ideas about it for a while, but there was one time where we were, you know, doing a group meditation where we were, you know, getting in touch with some force. And we'd done this before and I was prepared to hear, you know, then people would share their experiences. And a lot of them were these kind of visionary experiences. And sometimes people would express them with, without any skepticism about it. You know, I mean, there were a lot of like Robert Anton Wilson people in the in the order who had that sense of like skeptical play around these experiences, even though they took them seriously, but some people did. And it was like, Oh, I was in touch with the spirit of this and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes they were very insistent about it. And as an anthropologist, I just, I can't, you know, I can only put that into some kind of weird structure. Like I, I don't, I don't take it as a, as a real, as a claim of knowledge. Um, And then I was reflecting on what I did during that time is that I just sat in this room with the crappy carpet and the yellowing walls and the flickering fluorescent light in this like run down room in East Oakland and I just just you know in a zen way just was there. I was in this room with these robes, with the smell and the carpet and the flickering light and there was nowhere to go and that was awesome, but it wasn't <laughs> what most people were doing. And I was kind of like, you know, that's not really the secret stuff. Like you kind of need that to to get the whole thing rolling. And I think it can mm. be very valuable. And I think in some ways it takes you to the same place. But my own my own core. And that was really when I was like, you know what? I'm I'm not gonna I'm not really an occultist. I'm gonna just be a meditator, <laughs> do, right. do my zen <laughs> and think. You know, like that's kind of like I'm I'm good. You know, I'm good with that. But it, it, it's similar to that. That process thing you're talking about, and a lot, about, a lot of it is about process rather than representations or structures or symbols or, you know, ritual, complex sort of, you know, ritual performances that are doing all these things. And I, I got a sense of how powerful that process could be. But for me, it just, it's, it, it tended to devolve back into
0: a kind of appreciation of imminent process as the thing itself. Mm. There's a you quote um, Philip K. Dick at one point in the book, and what he says kind of resonates with what, what what we're saying here. Um, he says we should be content with the mysterious, the meaningless, the contradictory, the hostile, and most of all, the unexplainably warm and giving. I, I really like that because it kind of says very simply something that I've been you know in conversations and essays I've been trying to say is that. a a, a realist disposition in these, in this area here is kind of an acceptance of the world as it is, but it like sitting there on that yellow carpet in those robes is already weird. (laughs) It's, It's already kind of the magic is already in there. If you look at it from the right perspective, which I think is what you're trying to do in this book is just to shift our perspective so that we see how, how weird the banal, even the most banal realities are. And that's something I really like in Dick's writing too. But there you have this, this yearning for transcendence that he struggles with himself, and it's there, and then it's not when you read the exegesis and his, his fiction. As you as you point out in your book, it's less present in the fiction than it is in the non-fiction, in the the exegesis. But there's um this struggle between this like embracing what the the content of the experience, which is constantly seemingly telling you there is another world and this need to fold these experiences back into this world and not, as you point out at many points in the book, not fall off the tightrope into a state of conviction, which ends up essentially saying no to this world and yes to some other world that isn't itself like, uh, impervious to experience, like you can't actually get there. Do, do, do you know what I'm, what I'm getting at? No, here? I, I think so, that's yeah.
2: that's very well said, and that, that yeah. is a lot of what I was saying. You know, and I, for me, I I think I got there partly through thinking about psychedelic experience, where you'd go, you know, you you can explain the most amazing thing, and and unless there's really overt synchronicities or real world feedback things that happen, which obviously do happen a lot of the time, and in a way that's Almost another category of discussion, but I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm just talking about whatever encounter with spirits or, or even that, even even things of synchronicities because it's obviously part of what happens. Is you just you can then narrate that to somebody who is experienced, and they say, "Yes, yes, psychedelics are very strange," mm. and and you're like, "Wait, wait, no, 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 no." no. I mean, I, I saw the thing, and the time was <laughs> it was actually structured this way, and you're like, "Yes, yes, psychedelics are." Very strange, and and there's <laughs> yeah. this sense of like, how do we? And that's why I, I talk about this idea that I sort of throw out. I don't really develop, which it could, maybe I hope so, hopefully somebody else does because it's a good idea. This idea of like a metabolic ontology that you, you you whatever you want to say about psychedelics is, with very rare exceptions, they follow a pretty regular metabolic envelope. You know, about you know twenty minutes in or half an hour, blah blah blah, and it's going to last about this long here you know has this kind of peak structure and you know there's there's lots of variation but overall there's this kind of envelope that we go through and i think one way of thinking about that is that that's what the thing is, is there's this envelope of expanding possibility that then closes down again and we're more or less back sometimes people don't come back but that's that's mm-hmm. a, you know a different kind of maybe more pathological question but uh but within that that framework a lot of stuff goes down so in a way it's all kind of like that, you know, in a way it's like, yeah, I had a mystical experience or yeah. I mean, maybe even, you know, enlightenment that has permanent traces to it has this sense of like, Oh, that's it. Or that's all there is, or it's just this thing. Um, And, you know, especially seeing how far people who are on spiritual trips, whether they're underground hippie, psychedelic people, or, yoga people or new age corporate integral people, whatever, all this stuff, it's so easy to hose yourself um, that it just, it just seems that to affirm the deep transformative value of these experiences of thinking about them, of reading about them, of cultivating them in your life and to keep your feet on the ground and to have that kind of lightness and irony that's rooted in a profound respect. For now, you know, whatever you want to call it, physical reality isn't quite right. Reality, realism, whatever you want to say.
0: Well, nature is uh, a good one. Nature is a good is, word. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Actually, nature is the best one. I remember right. I saw I saw a uh, a guy do a, a Mendelssohn. I don't remember what he what which piece it was that he performed, but it was it was interesting because he had this whole kind of description of it as this kind of religious. It was it was some kind. It had some spiritual spiritual religious dimension to it. I think it was Mendelssohn and but then he said but but we can appreciate all of that as an expression of nature and he said it with great conviction like something he clearly thought about a lot and and it really made me realize something that's very true about me which which i think underscores some of my approach in, in the book and really through my work in general is that i've been always been interested in religion i've been interested in religious experiences i've been re- in, interested in religious art religious architecture symbol systems music big time like a lot of my music is more or less religious spiritual kind of music i'm interested yeah. in that juxtaposition but if i'm honest with myself most almost all of that stuff is primarily aesthetic it's yeah. it's not really religious with a capital r and i used to just kind of not think about that too much like whatever i just like religious art i'm interested in religion what other people think blah 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 and now i'm like yeah but what about me what what am i really doing here and it's just something about the aesthetic not just in the terms of art but the aesthetic as like the whole domain of feeling that the aesthetic is where it's ha- where it's happening and that we get confused when we try to make the aesthetic into some ontological claim or some kind of structure of the world or some kind of like way of organizing society. And yet if we just kind of do aesthetics in sort of a secular way, in my mind, you often get lost and it kind of becomes nihilistic or it becomes sort of rote or whatever. Like the whole thing is to like be in the aesthetic, but aim for the sacred and the experiences and results and frameworks and encounters and symbols, and all the stuff that comes from that that labor, that infinite Sisyphean asymptote where you never get it, but you, 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 you're focused that way, to me, it allows for a, a very rich and a very refined way of navigating this conundrum we're in.
0: you were saying just there, Eric, makes me think of a word that pops up a few times in the book, anthropotechnics. And you were talking about like the difference between capital R religious and aesthetic religiosity, let's call it, which I I, I totally relate to that very deeply. And as does Phil, I know from our conversation. Absolutely. Uh, eh, But I wonder if there ever was a capital R religious, you know, like you can't get much more religious, I find. Oh, well, I know it's a loaded term but if these three writers you picked right Terrence McKenna Robert Anton Wilson and uh Philip K Dick especially Dick right are I mean they all had phases of of deep commitment that one would associate with capital R religious even though it wasn't part of a particular community or tradition though Dick did convert to he was was Episcopalian yeah and and he committed to that um But I've always wondered if whenever a religious experience is happening, even if it's in in, like a devoted community of people who share a certain belief system and in their regular everyday conversations will say, yeah, I believe in this and you believe in that and that makes us friends and those people don't believe in it. When it's actually happening, isn't it always kind of the aesthetic thing that's happening? Like when when you're actually in the mass, right? Um, As someone who grew up Catholic, i've seen a lot of masses and the you know the eucharist is an aesthetic event like no one's affirming their belief at the moment and it's kind of that touches on what you know slaughter calls anthropotechnics where religion has always been a kind of aesthetic exercise and self-making in a way
2: yeah I, I, mix, I could see yeah. that i mean i was really uh, taken aback in a in a wonderful way by that claim in the slaughter book where he's just like look Religion as such doesn't exist. What we call religion is a misnamed collection of things that people do to transform themselves. Right. And then as, you know, especially having been exposed to so much discourse about religion in my PhD program, you know, I could name any sort of number of rejoinders to that. But I I actually really like what that claim does in terms of, shifting the focus. And in terms of saying, well, yes, but even if we can s- say the reasons that that's wrong, it's like, no, there's still something about dogma. There's still something about the collective, about how symbolic systems draw boundaries and we're on the inside and the, the, the other people are on the outside. To yeah. so say
1: nothing of the historical reality of institutions. Yeah, exactly.
2: Right. Perfect, perfect. That's that's the probably the most clear way of pushing back against that. But by running with it the way the Slaughter Dyke does, it sort of shifts the emphasis in a way that makes a lot of religion and spirituality sort of reframable and accessible and workable in a way without. Uh, you know, in a way, it's a kind of spiritual but not religious move. We're saying like, oh, no, no, religion is about dogma. Religion is about churches and institutions. And I'm not into that, man. I'm into spirituality. It's about experience. And in a way, what Slaughter is doing is a sophisticated, intellectually robust version of that, saying like, look, I'm just not that interested in this other stuff. And in fact, it's not really quite as important as what people are actually doing to transform themselves in that Foucauldian
1: care of the self way. And, and I think that's a, you know, it's an important move. Well, one thing about it is you can sort of say, what's the yield? You know, what are the affordances from, from doing this? Quite apart from like, is Slaughter Dyke right? It's just sort of like, well, what pragmatically do you get out of it? You get a lot out of it. You get a lot out of that reframing. Um, he, somewhere in that book in You Must Change Your Life, he talks about rotating the historical stage by 90 degrees, um, which I quite like because it's sort of like what, you know, you're, you're looking at it head on, it's religion, you rotate it 90 degrees and like, oh, it's things that people do, it's practices. Um, one thing that it does is it takes a lot of pressure off the question, well, what do you really believe? Or a question that would perhaps pertain to the the Mechanas or to Philip K. Dick or or to Robert Anton Wilson. Well, what did they really believe? Um yeah. When we rotate the historical stage and we're talking about practices, all of a sudden it's just sort of like, well, what you believe is sort of a function of what you do. You know what I mean? The the way we think about belief, I think
0: at one point in the book, Eric, you, um, I don't remember how you put it, but you kind of take a jab at, you know, secular people who look at religions and just... And boil it down to just beliefs, when in fact it 's much more than what one believes, like what one believes really depends on what 's going on in the moment, like when i 'm making toast, I just believe in toasters and bread you know it's, that's that 's what i 'm believing in but when it, when you 're in a an ayahuasca ceremony or in a you know a high mass in Latin or in uh, at the mosque, then yeah you can frame it the, the situation conceptually in terms of belief, but it's kind of the belief has you. It's not you who have the belief. You're kind of in this thing experiencing it. Then again, you have situations like you were describing earlier where you were part of that esoteric order and you were in the moment. And, you know, were you not believing in what the other people were believing? It's just belief is just a tricky word and a slippery one, I find.
2: Oh, yeah. I think that's definitely a lot of what I'm pushing back against. And also what and again, Dick is a somewhat different example Um what a, a lot of these guys were all doing, and especially Robert Anton Wilson, uh, was a, a way of moving into the field of religious experience by, by intention, either intentionally or temperamentally undermining the usual way that beliefs organize those experiences. And, you know, in a way, we're kind of hamstrung in the West because of the role that Protestantism played in setting up our secular categories of thinking about society and psychology and things you know i mean basically secularism is a and this is a you know this is what a historian of religion would say as opposed to other you know other kinds of scholars but you know secularism is a protestant sect basically it's just the one that won and embedded in that is a very protestant sense that the value of religion is the belief it's like the creed it's like do you believe you know wait how, do you actually believe that that Jesus died in sin for your sins. Oh, you don't. You don't. Oh, you're screwed. Doesn't matter what else you do. That's you know. And that strange emphasis, which is so unlike, you know, these other things that we call religions, has in turn then created this Frankenstein monster in secular people's heads, where what sets religious people apart is that they have funny beliefs. Of course, lots of secular people have hilarious. Beliefs. Lots of scientists have <laughs> ridiculous beliefs. Oh my God! You think you think what? You think scientific experiments do what about truth? You know, like right. totally in the face of just even a careful sociological analysis of the situation will show you that it's, everything's a lot wiggier than what they want to believe. But anyway, leaving that stuff aside, hmm. uh, it does have re- really have an impact on how particularly secular people think about think about religion, but also how religious people. Uh, think about religion. And what I'm trying to kind of show here is this term that Robert Wilson uses sometimes of, of kind of operationalism, which means both that it's more about what you're doing than what you believe, but that even beyond that, beliefs themselves have an operational or functional role to play. And that's where it gets kind of tricky. And you can yeah. you can go back to the, to the idea of set and setting. So pretty widely accepted that with, you know, some variations, some Substances is less true than others, but certainly with something like LSD, that your expectations, your ideas, your intention, your, your emotional set, coupled with the environment, with the things that are going on, the objects, the images, whatever, is going to in many ways, let's use a, a very 70s term, program your experience to a, you know, a good degree. And then, you know, when Leary's describing this, he then he kind of flips around. He goes, well, you know, that, that actually what, you know that leads to another conclusion, which is that we should be able to program this stuff in advance. That means you set up in advance what these sets and settings are going to be in order to, you know, you're not, you can't hit it on the money every time, but to sort of guide an experience towards some set of, of, of results that are desired. And so what someone like Robert Wilson does is he takes that idea and he says, okay, let's start, let's just start playing with beliefs as elements of programming with no greater ontological claim. So what happens when I get up every morning, look myself in the mirror and say, do you create your own reality? It's not that I believe that I create my own reality, really. It's that I'm doing this thing that functionalizes or operationalizes beliefs. And then you see that things happen. And, and I, I have a great example of this. It's one of my favorite, it's a trip story, but it's brief and there's not a lot of detail. I was gonna do this, you know, pretty epic mushroom trip. And, you know, beforehand, everybody says their their intentions, you know, and that's the kind of classic West Coast or, you know, new age thing to do. Everyone states their intentions. And I always say the same thing, uh, you know, stay awake, uh, keep p- paying attention, keep breathing, open to the experience, you know, that kind of shit. And at this time, I was like, I don't want to say that. It's boring. So I just said, <laughs> I go. I want to meet my spirit animal. I want to meet my spirit guide. Nice. And I didn't say it with any belief or not belief. It's not the kind of thing I normally think in. I mean, I know it's an idea out there. I know people have experiences. I've had experiences that I could describe that way, but it's just not. It's not my language. And lo and behold, in the midst of a broiling, you know, distressing. Uh, you know, overwhelming often experience, there were a few clear moments of a sort of encounter that were actually visually very different than everything else. They're very clear, very realistic, very naturalistic, very specific animal, very specific kind of connection. And it was even sort of uh, kind of signed off on the next day when I had a sort of synchronicity around that particular animal, which I'm not going to say. And that was really instructive for me. And, th- and someone like Wilson was just running with this kind of thing. How far we can take this. So it's not that it's not about belief at all. Like, oh, it's just about practice, which you find in like a lot of meditation stuff. It's not about belief, just practice, 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 practice. Here's some methods. You know, you get a little methods in there. If you think about them, they kind of imply certain beliefs or certain claims about reality. But you can really go a long way with really just kind of method and practice. But there's also a way in which ideas and beliefs can themselves become operationalized and then what do you say about that? What does that mean? I mean, yeah. you know, you can have an encounter with Jesus Christ and whatever, and you're like, but I, I set it up. I, who, Who's responsible for this? And so that kind of vertiginous, looping, wonderfully aesthetic, but also kind of ontologically confusing situation is very obvious with psychedelics. And it, it clearly helps explain what's going on with all the people I'm talking about in the book. But in some ways, it's just kind of what religion is, or religious
1: experience anyway, is. This is maybe hard to put in words, but okay, this is what I take to be the distinction between programming, to use that very 70s word, and one of Robert Anton Wilson's favorite words, metaprogramming. You know, at some point, I was reading your book, and I was like, man, is metaprogramming just a, a more pretentious way of saying programming? I'm like, no, it's not, because at least as I would understand it. The distinction is, you know, programming is sort of like you change your mind about something. You know, I thought such and so was a serious political issue, and now I don't think it's so serious. Um, But metaprogramming is like it is changing what Wilson called reality tunnels, the entire worldview within which a given opinion takes its place. What the chaos magicians call belief shifting is not just sort of like, having a new opinion on something. It's about feeling an idea as something, as as James puts it, uh, hot and alive. And the problem, though, with that is for something to be hot and alive, that is an experience of self that is at least in danger of leaving no remainder If that makes any sense, like what I picture when I think about this idea of belief shifting um, or willfully playing around with reality tunnels in this Robert Anton Wilson-esque sense – is almost sort of like, okay, so is there some part, some controlling part of your mind that you put in a lockbox somewhere, like a safe deposit box? Like So for example, thinking about Robert Anton Wilson and the way, and you talk about this in the book, how in Cosmic Trigger, he has um, names for a bunch of different parts of himself. The shaman says this, but then the skeptic says that and so on, right? Uh, He has names for these different parts of himself but who's the guy writing cosmic trigger and the idea is that well that's the that's the dispatcher right that's the guy at the switching yard that's some kind of meta position the homunculus, yeah. But the problem with that is, like, is there really a lockbox? Is there really a place where some remainder of a rational controlling self goes that you can kind of lock up and keep it hidden from yourself while you go all in on, you know, Osho or whatever, <laughs> you know, sort kind of guru or yeah. leader
2: that you... No, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's the question that's sort of asked by by Wilson's uh, life, and and you know there there are certain parts in the book that I wish I kind of had time to sort of expand on or to kind of bring to another level of reflection. And one of them was just basically his own narration of leaving this paranoid period in, in his life when he believed that there was you know entities on on Sirius who were communicating with him, and it was backed up regularly by synchronicities and things like that. And you know, and then later on, he can kind of re-adopt his sort of uh, metaprogramming pluralism with that sort of mischievous realism that kind of under, undergirds it. Because he was very grounded in many ways in ordinary life and wasn't alienated by ordinary life and in a really kind of interesting way, uh, wasn't trying to flee it or anything. And that was an important part of his whole you know, worldview, but clearly he sort of lost the plot for a while. And, uh, and then, so what is, well, how do we narrate? And he has a certain narration like, oh, I have this conversation with Valet and then I kind of made a decision. And that's an interesting thing is that he makes it, he narrates it as making a decision. I decided to believe that it's more likely that my left brain is, is talking to my right brain or something like that, than that there are actually aliens that are communicating with me. And so one way of, like, really boiling down your question is even whether or not you can keep your reason in a lockbox, because you probably can't. It, in some sense, it's a and dice And this is roll. why
1: it's such a dangerous or, way to play the game.
2: It's a high-stakes game. It's a high stakes game, yeah, it's at the tightrope walk is like you're you know it's scary you you is there a net I don't know, yeah. might be a net might be an illusion
0: <laughs> if, if there's anything that comes clear, if there's anything that comes clear from reading this book is that it's a high stakes game <laughs> because all yeah, three of and, these guys went through the ringer i wanted
2: yeah. I wanted that sense that there's no joke here, partly because. A lot of the current discourse about psychedelics is, is so banal and so healing mm. and like integrating and then da-da-da-da. I'm like, what are you guys mm. talking I mean, either, you, I, either that's the new set and setting, so our culture is trying to program these things into healing agents, because there's a mental health crisis. And because if you look at the history of psychiatry, we go through these like booms of enthusiasm for things like electroshock (laughs) and lobotomy and tranquilizers. And when they first hit, they're like, oh my God, this is going to solve all the problems we have with all these people who are crazy. And we're doing that right now with psychedelics. So it's almost like we're trying to program them to behave well, but they don't behave well. They make yeah. some people crazy they make some people you know have these kinds of extreme experiences they befuddle some they leave you know they they're they're really wide ranging in and, their effects
0: and just on that point, um something I wanted to say earlier when you're talking about set and setting and just in case some people are hearing here that um that reality really is what we make of it. Like we could, we just create our own reality. That's a half truth. There's another side to it. If we're going to remain committed to some kind of naturalism or realism. And uh, I think it's in this book where you, you mention Hoffman's bicycle ride. And maybe it's not even Eric Davis who wrote this. But just recently, I read this really interesting observation, tell me if it's in the book, uh, when you know Hoffman accidentally ingested all this LSD and had this legendary bicycle ride where he experienced all kinds of things. There was no set and setting there. He didn't even know he was on this. And he had an experience that pretty much fits the bill like it just it just conforms to the classic quote-unquote religious lsd experience one would have of like including encountering all kinds of entities All
1: all the accounts that you see if you go over to arrowhead right it looks like a classic arrowhead experience yeah exactly so it was there right it was he wasn't prepared for that so
0: there is still a remainder um Uh, totally. Yeah. It's in in, the substance itself. Yeah.
2: Or, well, you know, it's, where is it? I mean, is it in the substance itself? I mean, one way of saying that is that we have, uh, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent that I don't talk about in the book, but it's something that I talked about in, in an essay and have a lot more thoughts on that I haven't written up, which is that we have like these basic templates, Of experience that are given to us by our phenomenological experiences, humans walking upright on the earth through time, you know, and like, there's a whole that whole like George Lakoff thing about cognitive metaphors, these like basic metaphors that exist because of the nature of our physical lives of our naturalistic experience. So when we say something is a journey, that implies certain things because all humans have that thing of like you start out and then it takes time and there's a hassle and then you finally get there it's like a basic template so you can use that as a kind of conceptual metaphor to describe all sorts of things and it has certain entailments that come along with it it's both clarifying and obscuring but it's also kind of the way we think we think with these templates that have been given to us by our experience well one of those experiences which lockup doesn't talk about a lot of People who go follow this line. Don't talk about is dreaming and more specifically waking up from a dream. So we have like whatever dreaming is. It's like it's in the the core set of experiences. Even if the content may change in different historical periods and what a dreaming is to a to a Neanderthal is different than what it is to me. Sure, but dogs dream and we're, there's a lot of dreaming going on. It's very clear dreaming's going on. So. You know, when you look at something like LSD, like you have a naive LSD experience, you have no set and setting, of no set, no expectations. The fact that certain motifs or archetypes even show up also is resonating, not because the molecule itself has something, but because when we go through these liminal periods, there are certain things that get booted up because they're rooted in in dream. They're rooted in some kind of way of of modulating between you know reality. So I say all that. And at the same time, if we're being good speculative materialist animists, we gotta say that hey, LSD has something to say. You know, if I'm <laughs> in if I'm in relationship with a material entity that's got some kind of agency in the picture, that means it's contributing something. Right. So I can't reduce it all to either the nervous system or projection or set and setting. Like there is something that is being said. And, and you can see that very clearly if you compare the phenomenol- ph- phenomenological accounts of LSD to DMT. DMT right. is pretty resistant to set and setting. You know, you, you do that in a hospital. Okay, maybe you get more alien doctors. I don't know. But like, it's, it's gonna do what it's gonna do you know, pretty intensely, whatever
0: situation you're in. And so, yeah, same with Salvia Divinorum. I've, yeah, I um, think those, yeah. those
2: are two things yeah. that you're going to say, yeah, and saying, okay, maybe. Uh, and so for me, that the sociological model of kind of programming or metaprogramming or scripting um, that I'm in some ways very attracted to, as certainly as a way to explain the experiences of these guys, it only goes so far. And in fact, if we're being honest, if we're being intellectually upright, if we're being open-minded, and if I think we're, we're reflecting adequately on our own experience uh, as an empirical dimension of, of knowledge, that it only goes so far. And there's this other point that's like an openness to an alterity that has something to say. And even if I garble what it has to say, and that perhaps inevitably, there's so, still some communicative or symbolic dimension of that encounter that is worth pursuing and not simply deconstructing in the name of sociological scripts and things like that. And that's part of the tightrope for me, that, that balance, you know, and where do you draw the line? I don't know. You know, how far can you, how can you say that that's one thing and not the other? I don't know.
1: What do you think? Yeah. You know, I'm going to quote your words back to you. Uh, This is on page 20. I do believe that our experience is constructed in large part through cognitive, biological, and social processes. But I do not believe that all experience, let alone consciousness or the awareness that illuminates consciousness, can be reduced to a map of its structural mediations. The argument that the wordless intensities and arresting encounters of our most radical experiences are simply a product of language or cultural codes would have to be classed as a rather mean account of experience, an adjective I use here to mean both stingy and abrasive, two tones that are sometimes confused, at least in the social sciences, with the tang of truth. And I uh, I double underlined that. I really liked it um, because, you know, you're
2: <laughs> – Yeah, double underlined. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, because you're coming up against the received wisdom of our time, you know, the – off-the-rack, standard-issue, academic answer to everything, which is like it's constructed. And I like that you used the word mean in both a sense of stingy and dickish because the the two are related. Uh, This is a – I don't know maybe ad hominem sort of thing to say about like academics, but academics are not so different from anyone else. And something that I've noticed is a very common human response to somebody whose job sucks. Somebody working in an exploitative shitty job uh, is people getting pissed off at you for bringing up that you're in an exploitative and shitty job. And the attitude often seems to be, well, I, my job is exploitative and shitty so yours should be exploitative and shitty as well. There's this basic sort of feeling that uh, I'm not willing to grant to your experience any more than I'm willing to grant to mine, and that's a stinginess that, on the one hand, I think comes from a kind of a, a basic epistemological stance. Actually, we were talking about this with Jeff Kripal, uh on one of our shows, where he said, "You know, I'll it's something I say often." He said. Um, I'll ask a room full of people, do you want to know the deep secret of the humanities, the the humanities theory of truth or the academic theory of truth? It's like the more depressing it is, the more likely it is to be true. <laughs> and, you know, this this idea that uh, the truth is probably the most parsimonious arrangement of facts. That is an, a multimodal idea. You see it pursued across every discipline, every modality of human experience, and it becomes like a methodological prior. And so, for example, if you're trying to date like a painting or something, the responsible position is always to date it as new as possible. So yeah, or think about like tarot cards, the Responsible position is always going to be to start from the assumption of modernity until proven otherwise, until you find like an older deck that's from earlier than we thought. And what's interesting is that also turns into a characterological sort of set of assumptions. Uh, that idea, like, I'm not going to extend to your experience anything I'm not prepared to extend to mine.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's a really, that's a good, that's funny you made that distinction, because for me, maybe because I'm just well trained, like, (laughs) uh, (laughs) that I still do the former, given like the, let's say the esoteric claims about the tarot, I'm still going to go, you know, uh, I'm not going to go past the mid-19th century France on that Yeah. And whereas some people will go, oh no, there's this and there's an underground history, and da da da. I'm like, nah, nah, okay, maybe. But like, I'm not really going to budge on that. And partly because I think it just, for me, it keeps me honest because I'm not, I know that I am not attempting to deconstruct the value or meaning of those practices like some of the people who would say that might, might be. So that's part of like my own game. But when I turn to individuals, I, I try to be as open as, as possible. And it doesn't mean that I don't have, like, the bullshit meter kick in and make a psychological judgment of somebody or whatever. Of course, that stuff happens. But it happens in the field that they may know things that I don't have any idea about at all in any way. And um, that closeness uh, is, a, is a very unfortunate part of the, the academic
0: temperament. Mm. Right. It's interesting that question about the tarot. It's a, it's a good example. Like I'm just wondering how I how I react to those, you know, with the options. So it's either this ancient Egyptian thing that you know was passed down from I don't know who. I don't know what the what's the oldest theory for the tarot? Ancient Egypt yeah. really? I think that's where it's yeah. supposed to have started. And then the the the, the 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 most conservative uh theory is that it's 19th century. A nineteenth-century parlor game, you know, like the Ouija board or something. Well, no, so not
2: not the tarot themselves, but the esoteric reading of the tarot. Right, the, the idea
0: that the tarot has right, you know, it, right. Because we actually have decks from like the sixteenth century, I believe. Yeah, yeah, or even yeah, so even earlier. My sense is always that when when I read like Eliphaz Levy's theory of the tarot, I'm like, that's bullshit. But then again, (laughs) I'm probably going to call bullshit on, you know, the latest, uh, you know, (laughs) attempt by an academic to tell me where the tarot comes from. It's just a mysterious thing. It's probably been around for a long time and it's probably been used. I find that my intuition, uh, I don't want to turn this into a conversation about the tarot. I'm just trying to make a simple point, really. But uh, my intuition would be that the tarot, that cards and playing cards in general were probably divinatory before they became games.
1: Okay, so I'm on a show called Weird Studies, and so, like, what would be the natural, normal thing for me to say? Like, but maybe we should keep our minds open to the possibility that maybe the tarot really is the expression of the secret esoteric knowledge of the Egyptians, which itself is simply the profound knowledge of the way of the universe, whatever. But actually, one of the things I like about your book is that we come right up to the brink of a number of such moments where the subjects of your book are having that kind of like, I don't know, the chapel perilous. I love that term. It's Robert Anton Wilson used the term. Of course, it's borrowed from the Arthurian mythos, but it's the idea. It's like the point at which the sheer boggling immensity of a meaning blackjacks you or like overwhelms you. And one of the things I really liked in your book is the way you point out how at such moments, reason is not just—you know—you're not necessarily making an argument like, "Well, reason is better because it's more reasonable." You're actually making an argument for it from a kind of Foucauldian care of the self thing. It's just like, yeah, but reason is what is going to save your ass in those moments because those—like, how do you get out of the chapel perilous? This moment where you are in danger of being completely remapped within a belief system that is being thrust upon you by some bizarre and overwhelming set of circumstances. You know what I mean?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the that idea about reason that you just laid out, I I think is a really important one. It's something that, that that's surprisingly unarticulated, especially by people who are interested in exploring the fringe or who have no choice but to explore the fringe for one reason or the other, either temperamentally or the stuff just happens to them all the time, which is definitely a category of folk out there, which is it's a distinction that I saw made in an Alexander Bard book called Synthism, which is the super wild kind of like unmanageable, but fascinating attempt to sort of synthesize a new kind of religious model based on all sorts of theoretical ideas and Burning Man and stuff like that. So it's a super wild kind of pop theory book but along the way they make this argument of contrasting a rationality to reason and they talk about rationality as sort of a system and a system of making arguments and a, you know a, a set of rules about how you make arguments and that it tends to have both an abstracting and a totalizing sort of vector. Like it tends to take over. Like once you're in the the, the circuit of of rational claims, then that's all that really gets counted and it becomes very abstract. Whereas reason is always embedded and embodied in actual situations. And it's Mm. sort of like operating and clarifying as you move along. And it might deploy rationality, but it also might deploy irrationality or intuition or whatever. But that it's sort of not even just like a tool in your toolkit. It's almost more a little bit back to that question about who's the meta programmer.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: that you should keep your meta programmer pretty like on the ground you keep keep the meta programmer's feet on the ground as you go into this stuff. Not because rationality ultimately wins because it's right or the most parsimonious or the closest to truth, but precisely what you say, Phil, which is like confronted with this stuff, reason is paradoxically a very powerful magic. And that's right. a really interesting paradox that we're, you know, like I think a lot of people are, are pushing the boundaries of their experiences in ways that make this possibility more visible or make this truth or usefulness, pragmatism more visible. And, and that's that pragmatic approach to a lot of things. And I mean that pragmatic both in the conventional sense of it's just sort of useful and handy, get, gets you through the day. But also in terms of pragmatism, in terms of claims about knowledge and how knowledge is operative and how knowledge is valuable based on the way that it functions, a kind of operationalism about the truth claims Mm -hmm. we make. And I think those two things are are really related and that as we go into these kinds of experiences, that having reason as a kind of – I don't know, a kind of – a kind of stance, a kind of like, uh, like in D and D it's like you get, you got, you get like a, you know, a, a vial of reason, you know, and you get like, you, get, you got ten, 10, drops for the whole, right. for the whole journey. So you got to use them carefully. You don't get to use them all the time. I wouldn't, you know, but like, Oh man, okay, this is something weirds happening. Okay. I'm going to drop it. All right. Push. And you get, you see that it's actually just a gizmo or something mm-hmm. like that. The demon turns into a, a contraption that's been laid for you by some other unseen force. And that kind of balance, I think, is paradoxically what makes sort of like magical mental yeah. health, you know, like me- the mental health that is perfectly willing to leave the sort of framework of conventional reality or the principle of realism or... Um, and 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 so it, it's sort of
0: reframing what, what reason is and how reason uh, operates. In the mystical tradition, there, there are many definitions of the word logos, but one of them resembles what you just described as reason there, that the gift that humans have is this capacity to discern, to kind of slice through and see things for what they are, at least parse these things out in a self-reflexive way, which makes them turn things into tool or instruments or blocks you can build stuff with. And, you know, then often uh, maybe reason is a little bit that faculty to discern, right? I I think we're going to run out of time soon, but I just have one more question for my part, which is about the you push against historicism in this book, any type of like extreme totalizing historicism that would reduce everything to a, a social construction in a particular historical epoch or whatever. Um, and yet at the same time in the book elsewhere, you push against the idea of the perennial philosophy and that kind of perennialism. But if we're going to engage in these types of high stakes endeavors, you know, that the the subjects of your book engage in, if we're going to, if we're going to, dip a toe into that weird world if we're going to dare to think weirdly. And there are many like urgent contemporary reasons in your conclusion as to why we should be able, we should be willing to do that to a certain extent. But what's in it for us? And I think that what you're saying in a sense is that reality is more than what we think it is. And so by pushing into these weird directions, we, 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 we run the chance of discovering something new. But what what are your thoughts on, is there something perennial behind all this? Is there like some kind of um, Holy grail waiting for us? Is there some kind of breakthrough on the horizon or is the breakthrough precisely our the need to resign ourselves to living in a hopelessly weird world, you know?
2: Oh, okay. Well, it, uh, yeah, on that level, I would like to say that I, I maybe held something like the former because it, it seems like a, Maybe a more heroic way to live, or or more optimistic way mm-hmm. to live, but it just doesn't come for me. I mean, I, I I hold out the possibility that like illumination means something, that people can have experiences that make them highly ethical in a, in a new kind of way, that these things can be taught to some degree, and so you can actually help evolve the situation through. So in in that sense, I, I believe that it's not just we're resi- you know just resign yourself to this situation, uh, but on a on a deeper level, I I don't really I don't really see that that way out, and I'm very aware of how those stories of a way out almost instantly become kind of obscuring, and it seems more. Um, here's here's an analogy that that Phil might like, which is is that. In, particularly in the kind of Zen that people who are influenced by Dogen come to is that there's a very, very strong emphasis on not getting anything or not going anywhere. Right. You're not getting anything when you become enlightened. You're not, It's don't look for it, don't expect it. In fact, the less you do that, the better things are, just keep practicing. It's right here, right now. Which doesn't mean that people don't wake up within that with even within that world, people wake up. There's a before and after. You know, they get the knock on the head or the pebble you know <laughs> flips in the air or whatever it is and something happens. But there's something about setting yourself up for nothing happening that allows something to happen in a very organic, authentic and unhuman controlled way. And I do have a lot of, you know, the flip side of of anthropotechnics is instrumentality and i think we're right now we're actually in this weird race between anthropotechnics that are truly devoted towards evolving the situation and the instrumentalizing of precisely these same weird realms through technology through special forces through dark side advertising essentially mind control all that all this stuff is up for grabs everybody's Everybody's aware of it. You know, it's 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 not just the elves and hobbits who, uh, you know, know about the ring of power. As a, a friend of mine, Jamie Wheel said recently. In a way, we're in that kind of we're in that kind of tension. And to, to so to my mind, one of the best ways of dealing with the temptations of instrumentality is to resist the idea that you're getting anything, you're going anywhere, you're going to get out of the conundrum. It's because if you can really be here in the mess with the struggle with the suffering with the confusion with the weirdness and sort of write yourself balance yourself within that engagement that when and if or if these higher states of integration these connections these encounters that transform occur then you're just all the better set up for them and if they don't occur it's kind of like a pascal's wager in reverse and if they don't occur, then you're just learning how to live better with the weird
0: disaster that lies ahead. <laughs> and given all that, do you see high weirdness as a cautionary tale? That is an excellent question.
2: I, and it, it was one that I asked myself many times through the writing of it. And in the end, I would have to say yes, that uh, this is a high stakes game whether or not it's psychedelics or uh, inculcating extreme visionary experience. It may only be a game. It may not necessarily lead to pragmatic effects in people's lives that we could j- decide as a culture are good. So that itself is a bit cautionary. Like, do you really want to muck with your head <laughs> this way? Like, what what lies on the other side of it? Is it just uh, curiosity, diversion? Is it another kind of nihilism? So that's one side. But even more deeply is that if you are exploring in this way that it's a cautionary tale because we can see in very specific ways how each of the people I'm writing about kind of you know fell off the path or got wayward in different ways some of them not necessarily very disastrous I don't think it was the worst thing in the world that Terrence McKenna had this crazy idea about time that was really driving him like sometimes I think about Terrence like he needed one totally crazy idea that he totally believed in order to produce all of that entertaining, marvelous, stimulating, uh, esoteric riffing, which, you know, I greatly ad- admire and, and delight in. And I think is very valuable just for that. Not that he was a truth teller or a scientist or a mystic or anything like that. I don't think he was, uh, but maybe he needed that. It was sort of like his idée Fix, his little kernel of, of the real that he held onto in some weird way that that allowed him to, to motivate. But we can also see people, you know, Robert Anton Wilson was fully paranoid for a while, and Dick, you know, was always off in a variety of ways that are themselves convoluted to try to describe. And he's sort of a special case because he was always a very singular person, a non-neurotypical person. But it's still important to look at because... People are attracted to this stuff or they're, or it resonates with them. And it's an interesting thing whether what draws people to this stuff is because they want to have extreme experience or paradoxically because they're already crazy in some kind of way and they're drawn to the way that these people both acknowledge this world. They don't try to hide it, pretend it's not there, but they also have to come up with ways to sort of manage it, or to to save themselves from it, or to keep keep the edge of reason in the picture, so to not fully succumb to it. And I think a lot of people who are drawn to psychedelics and weird religion are managing their own pathology, to put it in pathologizing terms. It's not totally the way I think about it, but I I think about that way a lot. I think a lot of, and I know it's true for me that I have my whatever you know, my psychopathology is managed or explored or constrained or made into a site of meaning or whatever through my interests and my practices. Um, So in that sense, it's not, it, it is a cautionary tale, but it's not just a cautionary tale. It's kind of, I feel like it's for the people who need it, it's actually a healing tale. But for other people, it's probably a cautionary tale.
0: Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.